0: CHAPTER TEN OF SNOWDRIFT, A STORY OF THE LAND OF THE STRONG COLD, BY JAMES B. HENDRICKS. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY ROGER MALINE. SNOWDRIFT BY JAMES B. HENDRICKS. CHAPTER TEN. THE DINNER AT REEVES'S. WITH THE RUSH OF THE Chichacos HAD COME ALSO THE VANGUARD OF BIG BUSINESS, keen-eyed engineers and bespectacled metallurgists accompanied by trusted agents of wall street who upon advice of the engineers and the metallurgists paid out money right and left for options first over the pass in the spring came reeves and howson who struck into the hills and passing up the rich gold-in-the-grass-roots claims concentrated upon a creek of lesser promise By the 1st of July, their findings upon this creek justified the report to the principals in the states that roused those officials of the newly organized Northern Dredge Company from their stupor of watchful waiting into a cauldron of volcanic activity. Fowler, the little purchasing agent, sat at his desk and for 14 straight hours dictated telegrams. Pausing only to refer to pages of neatly typed specifications, with the result that within twenty-four hours upon many railroads, carloads of freight began to move toward a certain dock in Seattle at which was moored a tramp steamer waiting to receive her cargo. A sawmill from the Washington forests, steel rails, and a dinky engine from Pittsburgh, great dredges from Ohio tools, iron, cement from widely separated states, and the crowning item of all, a Mississippi River steamboat, jerked bodily from the water and dismantled ready to be put together in a matter of hours at the mouth of the Yukon. Late in August, that same steamboat, her decks and two barges piled high with freight, nosed into the bank at Dawson and threw out her mooring lines while down her plank swarmed the northern company's skilled artisans swarmed also into the waiting arms of her husband reba reeves wife of the northern dredge company's chief engineer and general manager of operation reeves led his wife to the little painted house that he had bought and furnished and turned his attention to the problem of transporting his heavy outfit the creek of his selection. For a month thereafter he was on the works night and day, snatching his sleep where he could, now and then at home, but more often upon the pile of blankets and robes that he had thrown into a corner of the little slab office on the bank of the creek. Early in October, upon one of his flying visits, His wife reminded him that he had promised to send a man down to bank the house for the winter. "'Don't see how I can spare a man right now, little girl,' he answered. "'I'm hiring every man I can find that will handle a pick or a shovel, or drive a nail, or carry a board. I've still got three miles of flume to put in, and half a mile of railroad grade to finish, and the snow will hit us any time now.' You can't work your old dredges in the winter anyhow, why don't you wait till spring? When spring comes I want to be in shape to begin throwing out the gravel the minute the ground thaws, and I don't want to be bothered building flume and railroad. But dearest, the floor is so cold. We can't live in this house in the winter unless it is banked. All the neighbors have their houses banked three or four feet high. And if the ground freezes, we'll never get it done." Reeves's brow puckered into a frown. "'That's right,' he admitted. "'Tell you what I'll do. I'll come down Saturday afternoon and stay over Sunday and bank it myself. Maybe I can find someone to help me. There's an old tramp that lives in a cabin a piece back from the river. One of my foremen has hired him three or four times but he's no good. Won't work more than two or three days at a stretch. He's a drunkard, and can't stay away from the booze. Maybe, though, if I stay right on the job with him till it's finished, I can get a day's work out of him. Anyway, I'll try. Of the books left by the Englishman, the one that interested Brent most was a volume from which the title page had long since disappeared as had the lettering upon its back, if indeed any had ever existed. It contained what appeared to be semi-official reports upon the mineral possibilities of the almost unexplored territory lying between the Mackenzie and the Bax Fish River, but more particularly upon the Coppermine River and its tributaries. To these reports was added a monograph, which treated exhaustively of the expeditions of Hearn into the North, in search of gold, and also of the ill-fated expedition of old Captain Knight. This book held a peculiar fascination for Brent, and he read and re-read it, poring over its contents by the hour as he dreamed his foolish dreams of some day carrying on Hearn's explorations to ultimate success. Upon the night following the visit of Camillo Bill, Brent sat beside his dirty table, with his stinking oil lamp drawn near, and his favorite book held close to catch the sullen light that filtered through its murky, smoke-blackened chimney. This night the book held a new interest for him. All along he had cherished the hope that when Camillo Bill should turn back his claims, there would still be a goodly amount of gold left in the gravel. But Camillo Bill said that the claims had petered out, and Camillo Bill was square. All that was left for him to do then was to hit for the copper mine, and not so much for himself, for he stood in honor bound to see that Camillo Bill lost nothing through cashing those slips and markers upon his assurance that the claims were worth a million. The book settled slowly to Brent's lap. He poured a drink and idly turned its pages, as his drunken imagination pictured himself mushing at the head of a dog team through those unknown wastes, and at the end of the long trail finding gold, gold, gold. He turned to the inside of the front cover and stared idly at the name penned many years ago. The ink was faded and brown, and the name almost illegible, so that he had to turn it a slant to follow the faint tracery. "'Murdo MacFarlane, Lashing Water,' he read. "'I wonder where Lashing Water is. And who was this Murdo MacFarlane? And where is he now? Did he find Hearn's lost gold? Or did did he—did he—' a loud knock upon the door roused brent from his dreamy speculation come in he called and turned to see reeves standing in the doorway hello greeted the intruder plunging straight into the object of his visit i'm up against it and i wonder if you won't help me out he paused and brent waited for him to proceed i'm reeves of the northern dredge company and I've got every available man in Dawson out there in the works trying to finish three miles of flume and a half mile of railroad before snow flies. I can't spare a man off the works, but I've got to bank my house, so I decided to stay home myself tomorrow and tackle it. If you'll help me, and if we get a good early start, I think we can finish the job by night. I WOULDN'T CARE A rap IF IT WERE NOT FOR MY WIFE. SHE'S FROM THE SOUTH, AND I'M AFRAID OF THOSE COLD FLOORS. WHAT DO YOU SAY? WILL YOU DO IT? I'LL PAY YOU WELL." YES, ANSWERED BRENT, AND HE NOTICED THAT THE OTHER'S EYES HAD STRAYED, IN EVIDENT SURPRISE TO THE PILE OF BOOKS UPON THE TABLE AMONG THE DIRTY DISHES. ALL RIGHT, THAT'S FINE. WHAT TIME CAN I EXPECT YOU? "'Daylight,' answered Brent. "'Will you have a drink?' he indicated the bottle that stood beside the pile of books, but Reeves shook his head. "'No, thanks. I've got to tackle some work tonight that I've been putting off for weeks. See you in the morning.' Seated once more in his chair with his book, Brent poured himself a drink. "'From the South,' he whispered and raising the murky glass to his lips swallowed the liquor his eyes closed and into his brain floated a picture dim and indistinct at first but gradually taking definite form a little town of wide tree-shaded streets a weather-stained brick courthouse standing in the center of a grassed square and facing it across the street a red brick schoolhouse the schoolhouse doors swung open, and out raced a little boy swinging his books at the end of a strap. He was a laughing, clear-eyed little boy, and he wore buckled slippers and black velvet knickers, and a wide collar showed dazzling white against the black of the velvet jacket. Other children followed, barefooted little boys whose hickory shirts many sizes too large for the little bodies bulged grotesquely about their galluses, and little boys shod in stiff hot-looking black shoes and stockings and little girls with tight braided pigtails hanging down their backs and short starched skirts who watched with envious eyes as the velvet-clad boy ran across to the hitch rail that flanked the courthouse sidewalk and mounted a stocky little calico shetland pony and rode down the tree-shaded street at a furious gallop on the outskirts of the town the pony swerved of its own accord between two upstanding stone posts and into a broad avenue that swept in graceful curves between two rows of huge evergreens that led from the white turnpike to a big brick house the roof of whose broad gallery was supported upon huge white pillars up the avenue raced the pony and up the dozen steps that led to the gallery just at the moment that the huge bulk of a round-eyed colored mammy blocked the doorway of the hall here you rascal you cried the outraged negress flourishing her broom get your circus hoss off in my clean gallery floor for I bust him wide open with this broom. Lord sakes, even Miss Callie see you here. She going to raise your hair for sure. You're caught a Brent, you git.' The broom swished viciously, and Brent opened his eyes with a jerk. The first fitful gusts of a northerner were whipping about the eaves of his cabin, and shivering slightly, he crawled into his bunk all the forenoon the two men worked side by side with pick and shovel and wheelbarrow piling the earth high above the baseboards of reeves's white painted house brent spoke little and he worked as it seemed to him he had never worked before the muscles of his back and arms and fingers ached and in his vitals was the gnawing desire for drink but he had brought no liquor with him and he fought down the desire and worked doggedly, filling the wheelbarrows as fast as Reeves could dump them. At noon Reeves surveyed the work with satisfaction. "'We've got it!' he exclaimed. "'We're a little more than half through, and none too soon!' The wind had blown steadily from the north, carrying with it frequent flurries of snow. "'We'll knock off now!' just step into the house. Brent shook his head. No, I'll slip over to the cabin. I'll be back by the time you're through dinner. Reeves, who had divined the man's need, stepped closer. Come in, won't you? I've got a little liquor that I brought from the outside. I think you'll like it. Without a word, Brent followed him into the kitchen where Reeves set out the bottle and a tumbler. "'Just help yourself,' he said. "'I never use it,' and passed into the next room. Eagerly, Brent poured himself half a tumblerful and gulped it down, and as he returned the glass to the table, he heard the voice of Reeves. "'You don't mind if he eats with us, do you?' he's worked mighty hard and the sentence was interrupted by a woman's voice why certainly he will eat with us see the table's all set i saw you comin', so i brought the soup in hurry before it gets cold at the man's words brent's eyes had flashed a swift glance over his disreputable garments his lips had tightened at the corners and as he had waited for the expected protest, they had twisted into a cynical smile. But at the woman's reply the smile died from his lips, and he took a furtive step toward the door, hesitated, and unconsciously his shoulders stiffened, and a spark flickered for a moment in his muddy eyes. Why not? It had been many a long day since he had sat at a table with a woman, That kind of a woman." Like a flash came Reeves's words of the night before. "'She's from the South!' If the man should really ask him to sit at his table, why not accept, and carry it through in his own way?" The good liquor was taking hold. Brent swiftly dashed some more into the glass and downed it at a swallow. Then Reeves stepped into the room. "'You are to dine here,' he announced. "'We both of us need a good hot meal and a good smoke, "'and my wife has your place all laid out at the table.' "'I thank you,' answered Brent. "'May I wash?' Reeves, who had expected an awkward protest, started at the words and indicated the basin at the sink. As Brent subjected his hands and face to a thorough scrubbing, and carefully removed the earth from beneath his fingernails, Reeves eyed him quizzically. Brent preceded his host into the dining room where Mrs. Reeves waited, standing beside her chair. Reeves stepped forward. "'My wife, Mr.' His voice trailed purposely, but instead of mumbling a name and acknowledging the introduction with an embarrassed bob of the head, Brent smiled. "'Let us leave it that way, please. Mrs. Reeves, allow me,' and stepping swiftly to her chair, he seated her with a courtly bow. He looked up to see Reeves, staring in open-mouthed amazement. Again he smiled and stepped to his own place, not unmindful of the swift glance of surprise that passed between husband and wife." After that, surprises came fast. Surprise, at the ease and grace of manner with which he comported himself, gave place to surprise and admiration at his deft maneuvering of the conversation to things of the outside, to the literary and theatrical successes of a few years back, and to the dozen and one things that makes dinner small talk. The Reeveses found themselves consumed with curiosity as to this man with the drunkard's eye, the unkempt beard, and the ragged clothing of a tramp, whose jests and quips kept them in constant laughter. All through the meal Mrs. Reeves studied him. There was something fine in the shape of the brow, in the thin, well-formed nose, in the occasional flash of the muddy eyes that held her. "'You are from the South, aren't you?' she asked, during a pause in the conversation. Brent smiled. "'Yes, far from the South, very far.' "'I am from the South, too, and I love it,' continued the woman, her eyes upon the man's face. "'From Plantersville, Tennessee. I've lived there all my life.' At the words, Brent started, perceptibly. AND THE HAND THAT HELD HIS COFFEE CUP TREMBLED VIOLENTLY, SO THAT PART OF THE contents SPLASHED ONTO HIS NAPKIN. WHEN HE RETURNED THE CUP TO ITS SAUCER IT RATTLED NOISILY. THE WOMAN HALF ROSE FROM HER CHAIR. CARTER BRENT! SHE CRIED. AND REEVES, STARING AT HIS WIFE IN ASTONISHMENT, SAW THAT TEARS GLISTENED IN HER EYES. The next moment Brent had pulled himself together. "'You win,' he smiled, regarding her curiously. "'But you will pardon me, I'm sure. I've been away a long time, and I'm afraid—' "'Oh, you wouldn't recognize me. I was only sixteen or seventeen when you left Plantersville. You had been away at college, and you came home for a month.' i'm reba morehouse indeed i do remember you laughed brent why you did me the honor to dance with me at colonel pinckney's ball but tell me how are your mother and father and fred and emily i suppose dr morehouse still shoots his squirrels square in the eye eh mother died two years ago and dad has almost given up his practice she smiled so he'll have more time to shoot squirrels fred is in college and emily married charlie harrow and they bought the old melcher place out in the pike brent hesitated a moment and and my father have you seen him lately yes indeed general brent and dad are still the greatest of cronies He hasn't changed a bit since I can first remember him. Old Uncle Jake still drives him to the bank at nine o'clock each morning. He still eats his dinners at the planter's hotel, and then makes his rounds of the lumber yard and the coal yard and the tobacco warehouse, or else Uncle Jake drives him out to inspect some of the farms and back home at four o'clock. No, to all appearances, the general hasn't changed. But Dad says there is a change in the last two or three years. He, he would give everything he owns, just to hear from you. Brent was silent for a moment. But he must not hear, yet. I'll make another strike one of these days, and then— Did you make a strike? asked Reeves. Brent nodded. Yes, I was on the very peak of the first stampede. Did you, by chance, ever hear of Ace in the Hole? Reeves smiled. Yes, notorious gambler, wasn't he? Were you here when he was? Made a big strike somewhere, and then gambled away ten or twenty million, didn't he? And then I never did hear what became of him. Brent smiled. Yes, he made a strike. Then I suppose he was just what you said, a notorious gambler. His losses were greatly exaggerated. They were not over two million at the outside. A mere trifle, laughed Reeves. Whatever became of him? Just at this moment he is seated at a dining table, talking with a generous host and a most charming hostess. "'Are you ace in the hole?' "'So designated upon the Yukon,' smiled Brent. Mrs. Reeves leaned suddenly forward. "'Oh, why don't you—why don't you brace up? Let liquor alone, and—' Brent interrupted her with a wave of the hand. "'Theoretically a very good suggestion,' he smiled. "'But practically it won't work. Personally I do not think I drink enough to hurt me any, but we will waive that point. If I do it is my own fault.' He was about to add that he was as good a man as he ever was, but something saved him that sophistry, and when he looked into the face of his hostess, his muddy eyes twinkled humorously. "'At least,' he said, "'I have succeeded in eliminating one fault. I have not gambled in quite some time.' "'And you never will gamble again?' Brent laughed. "'I didn't say that. However, I see very little chance of doing so in the immediate future.' promise me that you never will she asked you might at least promise me that if you won't give up the other what assurance would you have that i would keep my promise parried the man quick as a flash came the reply the word of a brent unconsciously the man's shoulders straightened he hesitated a moment while he regarded the woman gravely "'Yes,' he said. "'I will promise you that, if it will please you. "'Upon the word of a Brent—' He turned abruptly to Reeves. "'We had better be getting at that job again, "'or we won't finish it before dark,' he said, "'and with a bow to Mrs. Reeves. "'You will excuse us, I know.' The woman nodded, and as her husband was about to follow Brent from the room, She detained him. "'Who is he?' asked Reeves, as the door closed behind him. "'Who is he?' exclaimed his wife. "'Why, he's Carter Brent, the very last of the Brents. Anyone in the South can tell you what that means. They're the bluest of the Blue Bloods. His father, the old general, owns the bank.' and about everything else that's worth owning in Plantersville, and half the county besides. And oh, it's a shame, a shame. We've got to do something. You've got to do something. He's a mining engineer, too. I recognized him before he told me, and when I mentioned Plantersville, did you see his hand tremble? I was sure then. "'Oh, can't you give him a position?' Reeves considered. "'Why, yes, I could use a good mining engineer. But he's too far gone. He couldn't stay away from the booze. I don't think there's any use trying.' "'There is, I tell you. The blood is there. And when the blood is there, it is never too late.' Didn't you notice the air with which he gave me his promise not to gamble? Upon the word of a Brent. He would die before he would break that promise, you see. But he wouldn't promise to let liquor alone. The gambling, in his circumstances, is more or less a joke." "'But when he gets on his feet again it won't be a joke,' she insisted. "'You mark my words. He is going to make good. I can feel it. And that is why I got him to promise not to gamble. If you can make him promise to let liquor alone, you can depend on it, he will let it alone. You'll try, won't you, dear?' "'Yes, little girl, I'll try,' smiled Reeves, kissing his young wife. "'But I'll tell you beforehand—' You are a good deal more sanguine of success than I am. And he passed out and joined Brent, who was busily loading a wheelbarrow. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline.